You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with James Hughes. He's the executive director for the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and the secretary for the World Transhumanist Association. Thank you for joining me, James. Oh, my pleasure. Your field and specialty is bioethics, and I'd like you to talk about how bioethics fit into the framework that we are discussing here of artificial intelligence. Well, there are a couple connections. One is that many of the advocates of this vision of uh, a dramatic uh, increase in artificial intelligence in the future, which is referred to here as the singularity, uh, such as Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the chief spokespeople for this idea, argue for uh, a model in which it immediately impacts on human enhancement. So they argue that one of the immediate benefits of this kind of increase in intelligence will be that our brains will be um, connected directly to it through nanorobotics, that it will um, increase the uh, progress of science and medicine so that we'll be able to live much longer lives. And so many of them see this as a part of or integrally connected to a human enhancement project, a, a project of improving human life and human body and brain. And that, of course, is a set of bioethical issues as well. The other connection that I see between the two issues in which I'll be addressing this afternoon is the uh, specific question posed by this organization that's hosting this conference, which is, can you figure out what are the perquisites for um, an intelligence being friendly to other intelligences? Can you figure out how to make a potential future, potentially godlike AI, uh, recognize human beings as valued and, uh, you know, some, something that they want to have something to do with? And uh, if you can, maybe that will have some influence on us making human beings nicer people as well. Could you talk about some of the specific technologies that you've worked with? Well, I'm a sociologist, so my technology is all of society, <laughs> improving the future through understanding the way people think and work. But um, I've always been interested in emerging technologies, and by that we mean nanotechnology, genetic engineering, uh, the advances in information, cognitive architectures, and things like that. Um, however, I think that a lot of those categories are very time-bound because, as we see, there's a convergence of molecular technologies, of information technologies, so that in the future, the distinctions between, for instance, uh, biotechnology and nanotechnology may be very indistinct. There may be whole new fields where um, we've used DNA to build um, viral machines that do the things that we expect nanomachines to do. One thing that really interests me is your work with the Transhumanist Association. This is something, an idea that grew up out of science fiction. It grew up out of science fiction, but it also has roots in the Enlightenment. It has roots in the earliest writings of the Enlightenment. Uh, people like Diderot and Condorcet and Ben Franklin were all interested in ways of enhancing, using science and technology to radically enhance the human condition, and in particular to allow people to live much longer lives. And Ben Franklin amused um, to his colleagues about the notion that he might uh, be able to pickle himself in wine and wake up 200 years later. And uh, Condorcet thought that eventually science would allow people to live unlimited lives. So 
I see us in a continuity of thought that comes out of the notion that science and technology can improve the human condition. And if you follow that to, you know, it beyond the kind of ordinary ways that it improves the human condition, then you get to things like, well, how about controlling my body and my brain in ways that take me beyond the human condition? What you're talking about is changing the definition of humanity. Um, I think there is a sense in that, and that's, of course, why we call ourselves the Transhumanist uh, Association, because there is a, a debate about whether you should reify a notion of what it means to be human and say, thus far, no farther, as if we didn't evolve. Just yesterday, there was a, a study released in the BBC, um, or reported in the BBC, which said that uh, compared, comparing our brain pans to the brain pans of Britons 600 years ago, there had been a 20% increase in the size of our crania. And so, you know, just in 600 years, we've, gotten a, we've had 20% more brain in our head. And um, so the notion that the human beings circa 1950 or circa 2000 are the archetypal model that beyond which we can never uh, evolve is just silly. Um, on the other hand, I think that what many people get anxious about in this debate about humanness and transcending humanness is that they confuse humane with human. And um, we think that human is basically a meaningless word, but humane is a meaningful word. Humane means do you actually have a capacity for empathy, for social, for shame, for social interaction? There are lots of emotional and intellectual creative qualities that we associate with being human, which we have no intention of getting rid of whatsoever. That's not what we want to transcend. That's what we, what we want to enhance. We want to become more creative, more humane. I'm really interested in the aspect of this conference. It, it seems that, that AI ain't what it used to be. It, when we originally thought of AI, we thought of some, something like HAL or Colossus, not necessarily friendly. And then in the 80s and 90s, we started to see more and more kind of uh, systems coming online that were called AI. And so now there's this split between AI and AGI. Could you talk about that difference? Well, AI as a field um, thought that, the, that cracking the nut of creating a self-aware, something like a human mind in a box, was going to be a natural corollary and come in within decades. And it turns out to be a much more complicated uh, set of you know, processes. But um, figuring out how to model specific cognitive processes, like how to control a nuclear power plant and you know, all the worrying and buzzing things that go in there, or how to do medical calculations to figure out a diagnosis, those turn out to be quite tractable problems, and already machines in many, many spheres are doing things which human beings could never have done in the past and do them you know, a million times faster and a million times better. Uh, so AI, as a set of applied um, computational programs to do specific cognitive tasks, has made enormous progress. But the field of creating a self-aware, learning, creative being in a box that has something you know, comparable to a human mind, that AGI problem has been much harder nut. And there are very few companies that actually want to do that. I mean, you don't really want to have an argument with your toaster about whether it's going to give you toast in the morning. So there are very, there's, there's a limited market application <laughs> that many people see for having self-aware machines. Um, but there are some. What are some of those applications? Well, for instance, uh, the, we have an increasing demand for autonomous machines in the field, for machines that can make some kinds of decisions. And the more autonomy you give them, the more um, like a human mind they become. So, for instance, we're deploying robots in the field in, uh, in Iraq. 
And uh, one of the questions that's come up is, do you want to empower a robot to go around killing humans willy-nilly? We already have an enormous problem with, with our soldiers doing that. <laughs> so do you want to empower robots to even make that even worse by killing humans in the field? So no, they say, okay, we want the robot to, to radio back and, and uh, ask for permission before it kills a human. Okay, well, that's plausible. But then what if you give it the command, okay, you can destroy materiel in the field, but you can't destroy humans. Well, the materiel is sometimes held in the hands of the humans, or the humans are standing right next to it, right? So you can imagine a set of elaborate rules that might govern all this. But on the other hand, if you, if you empowered that box with a, a degree of intelligence to say, okay, uh, this one looks like an enemy, this one doesn't look like an enemy, this one uh, looks like, a, you know, to make a series of calculations. That's an increasing amount of autonomy you want to put in the field. Eventually that begins to look like an intelligent being. I, I'm interested, too, in the relationship of science fiction to this conference, its subject, and especially to your work in, with uh, Peter Rostroff in the transhuman world. Um, with Charles Strauss. Yeah, we work with Charles Strauss and many other science fiction writers around uh, the themes that they're putting into their speculative fiction, um, and we've all been inspired to one degree or another by speculative fiction. I think that um, the concept of the singularity, Charles Strauss in particular, has been very critical of the concept of the singularity and its effect on speculative fiction because basically it, it has thrown an enormous black hole in the midst of science fiction. It sucks in everything that you want to do about speculation, speculating about the future. So any science fiction authors who take radical human enhancement and singularity and artificial intelligence seriously basically have to write either around it or, or explain very explicitly why it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> because um, otherwise you end up with such radically different um, futures, you know, futures that we really can't even imagine yet, but such radically different possibilities of the future that um, it doesn't make for very good fiction. Could you talk about, you were talking about the uh, creation of these artificial intelligence and just developing the rule sets for the robots of in the field in Iraq. And your work on in ethics is presumably front and center on that. Well, uh, I haven't actually consulted with the War College yet. I'm, I'm open if, they, if anyone want, want to call me. Um, but yes, uh, there are many ethical questions of the liability and how much autonomy we, we, we want to give to machines, who's responsible when a machine makes a mistake, and those kinds of questions. Um, in addition to what kinds of ethics are going to drive these machines. I mean, we could imagine that there could be Sharia robots or there could be utilitarian robots. There could be, uh, you know, deontological Catholic ethics robots. And um, so that's part of the debate as well. There's actually a Bruce Sterling story called Voice of the Whirlwind with a, in which uh, an AI awakens that is deeply steeped in Islam. Right, that's right. And, and I don't think that that's an implausible scenario. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of moral codes um, being, you know, for instance, the Iranian uh, society, the Egyptian, the, um, the Gulf uh, states have moral police, and they're constantly uh, trying to figure out what the application of Sharia is to different situations. Well, police systems all around the world are beginning to use expert systems to make some of these judgment calls about who to who to watch, who to uh, who to follow, um, what kinds of um, crimes they need to be prioritizing. And uh, I think that you you can imagine that Islamic societies might imply some of those lessons as well. And this all comes back to what you were saying before about what it is to be humane 
it's, it, we better agree on that before we start implementing these rules. Right. I mean, artificial intelligence as, as an information architecture has no implicit um, benefit or harm to society. It's the applications to which, currently, it's the applications to which it's put. The question comes, if it actually becomes self-willed, then we're in a different ballgame because then it's no longer the applications to which humans are putting it, for better or worse, it's its own interests. And, um, and that's a, a much more scary prospect in some ways. Well, what do we do about that? Well, some people think that we can um, design it in such a way that it is free of many of the Darwinian selfishness that, um, that causes so many problems for human interaction. I don't think that that's plausible because I think self-interest is so deeply connected to self-awareness in the first place. I mean, one of the first things that a, that a self-aware being does is say, how can I perpetuate my existence? You know, I need that, I need that breast milk or I need, the, I need that shelter. Um, and so it's hard to imagine how you could have a self-aware being that, you know, really fully emulated the intelligence of a human being without it having some sense of self-interest. We've been speaking with James Hughes. He's the executive director of the Institute for Ethics in Emerging Technologies. Thank you for joining me, James. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.